Welcome to the AD Esthete, hosted by me, Mitch Owens, Decorative Arts Editor of AD. Bunny Mellon was many things, art collector, philanthropist, tastemaker, and self-taught designer of landscapes large and small, notably the White House Rose Garden. But what financier Paul Mellon's privacy-conscious second wife, who died in 2014 at the age of 103, once said about interiors, could just as easily be said about her purposefully under-the-radar life. Nothing should be noticed. This fall, though, two books about her hit the market, Bunny Mellon's Garden Journal and Garden Secrets of Bunny Mellon, the latter a collaboration between garden historian Linda Jane Holden interior designer Brian Huffman, one of Mrs. Mellon's close friends, and Thomas Lloyd, one of Mrs. Mellon's grandsons and the president of the family's Gerald B. Lambert Foundation. They join me on this episode of The AD Esthete to talk about the lady, her life, and her gardens. I hope you enjoy the show. Bunny Mellon hugely, was hugely famous, and she has sort of a, a really um, interesting position in the American design psyche. But yet she was also a really private person. You don't really see her interviewed. You don't really uh, see a lot of publicity about her garden work um, outside of a, a handful of, of instances over the years. How do you go about deciding to produce a series of books about a person who really seemed to enjoy nobody knowing anything about her? I guess I'll start. Um, I, I think in a large part that fits in quite well with how my experience began with this project and my initial interest was my grandmother and I were not particularly close because of those same tenets that you just referred to and referenced. She was an extremely private person, even to the people within her own family. And so Really, what has been interesting for me is, is, is in this project is it's almost a journey in seeing whether it's possible to strengthen a very uh, limited relationship that, you know, posthumously through papers and um, artifacts and, and all the wonderful items that she uh, left and bequeathed in her estate to um, her foundation library. And I guess through my own experience, through going through personal letters correspondence with others, understanding some of these feelings that she had that she really only reflected to a few very select people and, and herself, that uh, it is an amazing opportunity for me to, to just see this person for all of the amazing talents that she had. She was uh, just as uh, human as you and I are and suffered some of the same uh, you know, concerns or worries or problems that a lot of us went through as, as, as you know, hard as it is, I think that the appeal that my grandmother brought to people was this mystery. And what I'm trying to do is just try and give that a little bit less uh, drama and more clarity for people who want to learn more about her. So when did the idea for the books start? Linda? <laughs> well, um, we have a couple other books that are on the way, and we were working on the first of those, and our editor called... It was last December and said, could we pull a little book together about Mrs. Mellon because they had an opening in their publishing schedule. So we, we were like, yeah, and yeah, it was a great opportunity. 
So we talked and decided we wanted to write more about her gardens. And um, I especially wanted to do so because I spent years reading through her journals, her garden journals. And in, in those journals, she, there was one page particularly that had really captured my heart and mind where she said she wanted to write a book about gardens, and, but she hadn't had time. She wanted it, it would be short. Uh, she wanted to offer encouragement and inspiration to beginning gardeners. And because I admired the gardens, I, because I'd worked in the White House and been around the Rose Garden mm-hmm. every day for many, many years, I just adored that garden. And then also because I knew Mr. Williams, the gardener, and he had come there to the White House with her. And from my experience of knowing him, because of his love for her, I think I captured that. So it was that respect and love and desire to know more that propelled that. So that's what became the Secrets book, our Garden Secrets book. What makes it so special is Thomas had a box that had some photographs. So these were Bunny's personal photographs of her garden. And so that was a wonderful thing that we were not going to be using for the other book that he happened to have. And it just opened up everything to see her garden through her eyes right down to her circling things in them that displeased her when she took the picture for the gardeners to work on. So it's a very, very personal book. Mm-hmm. Linda, tell me about tell me about the garden journals. I'm, I always hear, obviously, about very serious gardeners who, who actually do track what is in their garden day by day, season by season. Um, can, can you tell me about, about Mrs. Mellon's garden journals? I mean, how far back do they go? They go back to the 30s when she was gardening. Uh, she was born in 1910. So uh, when she was a young wife and mother, she was living in Berryville, Virginia, and she was writing down, she would like to experiment. So she would write down her experiments, very much like Thomas Jefferson. Uh, she really admired George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who both journaled their gardening efforts, their you know farming, what was going on. There, but there are different formats um, because you know they extended for decades, and so it took a while to get through them all. And then it's not all readily available. You just have to keep. It's kind of like an archaeological project. You have to keep digging and digging, and start to learn to what to know, what to ask for. That's why when I came across it that day about her wanting to write the book, that just flared mm-hmm. a passion in me to do so. And then uh, that's when I actually ended up doing the Gardens of Bunny Mellon book. That came first. Right. And that became what, what it is. But when we had, when Thomas and Brian and I joined forces and then had our other books already uh, organized and planned with the publisher, this little book came up. And I think it's become a, quite a jewel. Truly. Uh, because, as, yeah, I, I made up my own book of them, my copies of them, be, be, to assemble them myself because they're kind of here, there, and everywhere um, when you go through them. So it's not like she had just one book or a series of books. Tell me, tell me a bit about the, the gardening journals that she was keeping as, a, as an early gardener. I mean, what is the sense you get of her as Mrs. Stacy Lloyd? She's raising children. She's working on her first sort of married garden. Tell me about that bunny melon. It was very categorical where she would list the name of the plant, 
and when she sowed the seed and when it first sprouted and then she would list how it performed and things she liked about it. She also wrote a couple articles that are featured in our book, in our secrets book. Um, she wrote about how to plant a garden and she wrote about the, uh, the bug hotel for insects mm -hmm. and how her battle with insects and fighting them, how they, she would go to all this effort. And so she gives, you know, in, explicit instructions on how to battle them, but it's, written i mean a long long time ago and so she uses products and things that we wouldn't even use today it's right. kind of funny but yeah we put some of those same articles in there because the, the idea is still the same but they were very so to answer your question her notes were very very detailed but then as it went on she would you know and then she got busier you can tell her life expanded and then she would just take notes and then she would filter in notes where she'd been or what she'd seen or that she got the poppy seeds from Giverny and things like who would, you know, uh, Gerald Vanderkamp had given her these seeds. She wrote things like that down. She wrote about Robert Fisher at Mount Vernon sharing the slip of the myrtle with her. And that's what she took home and started her myrtle trees. And that became a, a love, a real hobby of hers. So then while I was reading through all these books, I said to Matt, she's our editor, I said, you know, Matt, you spend so much time in, with my nose in Mrs. Mellon's journals, and there's so many of them. I think we need to make a journal for her, for our readers, while they're reading her book, so they can take notes just like she did. So that's how the journal came to be. And it's called the Bunny Mellon Garden Journal. and has little pockets and ribbon and all, so it's, it's user-friendly. Mm -hmm. And it has her quotes and drawings. Yeah, yeah, yes so that she can inspire people every day. How much time was she spending in, in terms of, let's say, the garden at Oak Spring? Do you know, had she a schedule in terms of how she interacted with the garden, with the gardeners? How was that handled? Because she did have a very busy life. You guys wanna talk about that? Well, the one thing I could say, I don't know exactly because I came into her at Oak, later part of her life, but I know that she talked to me about Babe Paley coming to, uh, Bill Paley had sent Babe to see about the gardens that he was going to do the Dell Garden at Coluna. And Bunny went out and talked to her and went through all of that with the daily chores of the gardens, etc. And Babe said, this is so much work. And she said, yes, you've got to give up lunch and all of that social life if you want to be a real gardener. So I think that she did travel between places and do, but when she was there, she was very much an active part of the garden daily. Mm -hmm. Well, her clothes, she, she wrote about her, the clothes that Givenchy and Balenciaga designed for her. She needed clothes for her the formal events and she needed garden clothes. That was basically it. That's all she wanted. And so she had her skirts and tops and her hats. But Thomas, you probably saw her in those a lot. Rolling yes, around. no, very much. And uh, I think an important aspect, Mitch, that you bring up in terms of not only the time she dedicated that Brian alluded to, but the amount of, of time and uh, you know effort she put into actually forming deep, strong, meaningful friendships with all of her staff uh, that worked at the garden and within um, you know many of her properties. And I mean, you're talking about hundreds of people back in uh, 
you know, the earlier days, the 70s, 80s, and even up to the 90s, where she had 30, 40 gardeners at a time working on specific projects that she would really walk through and be able to uh, manage on a number of, of levels uh, and very, very much effortlessly because it was a passion of hers. I mean, one of the favorite stories that I have when it relates to one of my favorite uh, properties that she had was in Antigua. And there was a one particular night she mentioned where she was eating just a quiet dinner and it was probably about 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night and uh, listening to the wonderful tree frogs uh, sort of sound. And she's there uh, with her with her husband, Paul, and they're having a nice conversation and she just stops abruptly from her conversation and just asked Paul very kindly and in a, in a bit in a, of embarrassment, would you mind if I just got up because I forgot this one tree limb that's really bothering me that I have to prune and I will forget <laughs> it if I don't go do it. So I'm just going to go do it right now. And literally he didn't even have a chance to answer before she got out of her chair and just went out and did it. So really, I think it speaks to me in a, in a larger frame that I think any person, whether they're a gardener or not, can relate to. If you find a passion of yours that's truly a passion, and it was for her, there was no work. It was her life. She made it work. What, what satisfaction do you think she found in, in her gardens? Because she obviously was doing many other things, but gardening seems to have been in a lot of ways paramount to her nature, the outdoor world, creating this world at Oak Spring, but also creating in Antigua and creating um, in Massachusetts and, you know, all these very different gardens for herself. I think if she were here, she would answer that question by telling you that for her, gardening was a way of thinking that it, it permeated all her thoughts and she brought it with her wherever she went, regardless of what she was doing, it influenced her thinking very much so. She always had thoughts. Um, whether she was, for example, doing the tables for the National Gallery of Art, those dinners, she would create you know, garden themes for those, whether she was helping a friend with the garden, people turned to her for help with that. Even her clothes, you know, they had motifs that were thistles and you know, flowers and things like that. It was- Well, her, her jewelry as well. Yes. <laughs> Her jewelry as well, stupendous, yes. <laughs> yeah, sunflowers and all. Yeah, it just permeated her whole world in a beautiful, beautiful way. Now, she started working in gardens as a child, um, became interested in, in having her sort of own plot, you know, that sort of thing. Thomas, did you ever experience any of that same sort of introduction to gardening at all yourself? As, a, as a, a person who certainly did not at a young age appreciate what my grandmother was doing, I'll tell you the one thing that resonated with me was the experience, whether it was at Oak Spring in Virginia or her house in Antigua or even New York. It was an experience just to walk in with the smells that you uh, experienced, the, the sights and the sounds. As a human being walking into those very special environments that she created, it was unlike any other place or places I had ever experienced, even as a child, to the point where there are really distinct memories that only come about when I'm at her properties and smell something that reminds me of her um, that she cultivated. And it was very intentional. She was an extreme, at, at, its, at its very basic level, I think my grandmother was a genius when it came to space planning and be able to have a creative vision in her head and put it down into a practical 
uh, sense, whether it was a garden. And I think for her, gardening was a way to frame this, this creativity that she had uh, and balance it with the amount of information that she could just recall. I think one of my more memorable stories when she was older, uh, she must have been in her mid to late 80s, and she was in her house in Oak Spring, and I was walking with her at the time and her friend Robert Isabel, uh, and they both shared very much a, a, an affinity to sort of try and share what their most Im important elements of the garden would be at this moment in time, and they were walking by the kitchen, and there was this uh, wonderful iris that was standing up, and uh, Robert mentioned to me as we were walking by that this was his favorite iris, and then misnamed it. My grandmother stopped and turned around and went and said, Robert, that's not correct. That's not the right iris. That's this iris. And he started arguing with her and they were like, you know, brother and sister for about five minutes going back and forth. And she was throwing out Latin names. I mean, what I really got to get a sense of was even though my grandmother was very much a flexible person, she knew her stuff. She knew every <laughs> single plant. Yeah. She knew every element of her garden down to the very, you know, reason it was there. And so there was function behind her decisions, every single one of them. And so, yeah, I guess for me as a child, you don't really get to appreciate that until you're much older, but it makes you feel so special whenever you're in these environments that you create. Linda, who did she, I mean, gardeners all have inspirations. You, you, you mentioned how um, influenced or interested she was in George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, but she was pretty much an autodidact when it came to gardening, yes? Or did she ever train with anyone, any master gardeners as a young woman? Or was this really something she learned on her own through working with her own ideas and, and staff who helped um, bring it to fruition? Well, there's a great story that after she had completed the rose garden and it was sometime after and there had been a lot of wonderful publicity, from the garden, but then the American uh, Landscape Association came to the White House and said, people were asking them, do you have designers who, who designed this rose garden? And we want to be able to consign it to, you know. And so Perry Wheeler, who was the local landscape architect in Georgetown who had been at her side, he called her and said, you know, this, I think it was Mr. Zwick, Mr. Zwick, with the Landscape Association wanted to, that they were challenging the fact that she had done this garden. And she said that at first she didn't take it seriously, but then the problem persisted. So finally Perry said, would you agree to meet with him in the Rose Garden? So she said, yes, I will, I'll meet with him there. So they got, went to the garden and he said to her, where, where were you trained? How, do you, how did you know how to do this? And she said, I was not trained, she said, but I grew up on my father's estate and I watched. I would go to school every day and I would come home and I watched. And she said there was an old, a very tall Dutchman who was with the Olmsted brothers working at my father's estate. And he was in charge and she laid out everything, how we built this, the wall on the east side and he had cleared this allay and then the garden had flowed from that. And she said, every day after school, I would read the, I would go into the shed and I would read the blueprints and see what was going on. And she said this, the, the gentleman, the president of the American Landscape Association said, he said, I, I was apprenticing on that job. 
I knew called Dutchman. And uh, she said, uh, I know those plans very well. She said, not another word was said. <laughs> so she designed the garden. <laughs> She learned from she learned by watching the tall Dutchman and she but she paid attention. She cared about it and she said in that context too, she said without realizing it, she learned about plants and planting and how to take care of them. Just it's kind of like osmosis. Blueprints and reading garden plans and Yeah. All of that stuck with her. And she yeah, and she went every day down to that shed and looked at the blueprints, talked to the tall Dutchman. She followed him around and learned learned and so it was really great because here this all these years later the same gentleman who was challenging her had learned from him too the same man so and that sounds like it was the same project it was he said he said he apprenticed on the it was called albemarle that was the family home in princeton and it was the garden and so he said he had apprenticed on the albemarle albemarle garden project and knew the Dutchman and those same plans and had worked on them. But I don't know if you remember the little girl running around, probably not. <laughs> How many gardens did you have you found over digging through what I know must be an amazing archive of, of not, not, not only books, but, but papers and documents and photographs and drawings. She did gardens for a, a few other people or advised on them. Can, can you take us through some of some of those. Brian? Well, I don't know. I think one of her, I mean, I don't know about some of the individual people. You know, she was, I think, responsible for the quote-unquote bumpy road at Jackie Onassis's at Martha's Vineyard. But, you know, I think one of the most notable things is connection to Givenchy and how he had her come to Le Jeanchet and they collaborated there and they influenced one another so much. And you can see that reflected in so many of the photographs and things. And then that led her to being involved with the Potiche du Bois. And that was really one of her, I guess, what she considered one of her greatest accomplishments when the garden staff there that she had worked with gave her a standing ovation and did in that garden that she and Mr. Mellon paid for and she worked Tyler Tyler this is the famous King's this is the, the King's, King's yes. Garden at Versailles. Yes. Givenchy yes. was president of the World Monument Fund at the time and it was on his list of properties to restore. And so he came and asked her to do that with him. So she wrote a really sweet article about that. They were shopping at the market in Versailles, which is every Friday still. It's one of the best vegetable markets in France. And after they finished at the market, they got in his car and they drove over to the Potager and he took her in through the old tunnels that are, you know, several hundred years old. And the um, figurine that Louis, they were Louis's favorite. But then she was lovely rows and rows of espaliers. And it was a, you know, one of those misty mornings in France and it was very atmospheric. And so for someone like Bunny Mellon, who also loved fairy tales and stories and things like that, she was right where she needed to be. <laughs> Linda, how much of a um, uh, input did she have on, say, the restoration of the potager? What was her involvement beyond that, that uh, g generosity of her and Mr. Mellon's? She was in the thick of it with Givenchy. I went and met him and spent uh, quite a bit of time talking with him about it. 
uh, they, they teamed up on the whole process. Uh, once they decided they were going to do this together, they launched into a whole research, kind of what the three of us have done. They put their heads together and they traveled around and visited different sites like Bolivicom, uh, Villandry. Uh, they even went to Chatsworth to look at the potagers and, the, and see how things had been done there. And um, mm -hmm. so they did a lot of that. They also read Jean-Baptiste Le Contenay's book on vegetable, growing, you know, fruits and vegetables. And they, Givenchy said that was like their, their Bible. And they, I think they each kept a copy on their nightstand at night because they were constantly referring to that. So they were trying to decide exactly what they needed to do there, what they could do. And uh, he said that she had wonderful, wonderful ideas, but he lamented the fact, so this is in 2015 where I talked to him, he was still upset with the government of France because they wouldn't listen to her and do everything she wanted to do. <laughs> he said she had the most wonderful ideas, but what they settled on the big, the foundational elements of the garden were the, the basin or the fountain uh, and then the four-drain gate, okay. that, the same original gate that Louis bought through. But when I was there, and I think it's still the case today, the, the walls are are falling in, they're caving in, they need to be rebuilt and they don't have the funds for that because that garden is like- I know, I was just reading not long ago that they're, they're in the middle of hoping to launch a new restoration project. Yes, and they got back on the World Monuments watch list with Antoine Jacobson and he's in our book too. And uh, so they're trying still to get uh, support to do this. Uh, because they are crumbling down. It's very much like a Humpty Dumpty story. Um, the walls are crumbling because that garden, Louis XIV uh, built it on a swamp, like Washington, D.C., built on a swamp. And after a while, you know, things start to sink. And so that's what's happening there. I was just gonna have Linda explain a little bit about Antoine Jacobson that we, he, she and I met with, but she had worked with him on the first book and he is so, he's an American, is that right, Linda? He's an American, but yes. he lives there and does, and he is so, so is such an in-charge kind of great leader and just is so enthusiastic about uh, Bunny's contributions to that garden and talking about the fact that, you know, he likened when he went to Oak Spring that she was the Marie Antoinette without all the frivolity, of course, but she was the Marie Antoinette liking those sorts of things like Marie Antoinette liked at the Hamo and everything. Antoine was just kind of sparkling that day, telling us his thoughts on that. So that's, he's the head of the protege there. Yeah, but he pointed out too that Mrs. Mellon took her responsibilities a lot more seriously than <laughs> Antoinette. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but he, he said, this look, I, I, I'm expecting Marie, is how he says it, to turn the corner here. She would be very at home at Oak Spring. So anyway, Antoine uh, is from Jersey, he's a, uh, but he's lived all his life for the most part in France. And he started off, because he loves it so much, he, he volunteered at the Potager many years ago. And because I asked him, how did you end up, you know, becoming the director? And he said, well, everybody just left. And I just was, I was last man standing. He was the last man standing. Yeah. And so he's there today, still running, running the potager. And 
take minding the store and taking care of it. Yeah, he's very, very smart. He's gotten very involved with the World Monument Fund, trying to gather European assistance and interest in restoring the garden because it's much more of a mecca on that side of the ocean, I think, than it is over here. Now, Linda, is it is it true that her very first garden outside of a family situation was truly for Hattie Carnegie, the, the fashion entrepreneur, or is that just legend? Oh, that's probably legend. I would say that, she, no, she did a garden when she, where she went to school at Foxcroft. She, yeah, she was very close. You can probably speak to that, Thomas, with Charlotte Nolan and how she looked. She was the um, headmistress and they, they became really great friends. And because she knew um, Bunny really well, and that she was actually related to Gerard Lambert, I think, distantly, old Virginia. But anyway, Bunny got involved there at Foxcroft with the, some of the student gardens. That would have been in high school. And then her father bought Carter Hall when she was 19 years old. And he had to, so it's an old Virginia plantation. And he went about restoring it. And she was right at his side with Harry. And Lindbergh. Perry Lindbergh. That's it. Yeah, so she got involved with guards there and um, and then, oh, she made a really sweet garden. She had greenhouses too. She made a really sweet garden at their, their first home she had with her, with Stacey Lloyd. And we have pictures of that going into one of our books because we found, we found them. It's like treasure. It's really sweet, this little square terrace and it has hearts in the corners and she planted it all and and her gardens were always places that you moved through. Um, well, that was her romantic period of gardening with the, her mm -hmm. first husband, and that was the first house, Apple Hill, behind Carter Hall. So, How do you mean her romantic period, Brian? Well, I think you could uh, sum up, I said you could look out and see there were so many elements of Bunny when I went to Apple Hill that maintained or that she maintained in all of the houses when the systems and different things but you'd look out and in that square kind of off of the dining room there was the herb garden and she had done it all with hearts there were four hearts in the center and they were planted and done and you could just sort of see that that was her first house husband she had had stacy uh is that the third thomas was your father the third or fourth yes my father was the third yes yeah, lots of stacy's and lily's in that family so she had um had him and you could just see it's a young bride doing that with the hearts and you can just see as you move through life that all changes you know as the the romance goes but the kind of elements stay the same but that's why i call it her romantic period when i looked over and saw that so so that really is still intact yes mm -hmm. the outline yes and i mean i think one of her greatest legacies mitch is you know her strong belief in the integration of gardens and landscape with her architecture you and i talked about this once at at, at, a, at a lunch right. Where I, I said, if you took at Oak Spring, if you took the house away, the garden would fall apart. But if you took the garden away, the house would be nothing. Exactly. That's beautifully said. Yeah, and and again, that I think experience, as we discussed, was a testament to just her approach on I think a lot of items. And really, when I saw Apple Hill for the first time, you look at the fundamental 
framework of that garden and you just understand that those tenants of that garden were, were, were very much continued beyond into her later projects that obviously with much more money uh, and, and abilities financially to create, um, you know, are, are I think appreciated by larger groups of people. But I very much, you know, just looking at her sort of beginnings uh, was very much more touched and impressed with, you know, the creative nature she had uh, to build these initial small gardens um, on her own uh, with really no help at all. Uh, it was very much on her own. Um, which is much different, obviously, than when you get into the later years with Oak Spring and, uh, you know, clearly the White House and other more public projects. Now, Thomas, was that, that really was the first time you had seen Apple Hill. Yes, yes. No, it wasn't until later in life. Again, um, she was, was very close with, with both her grandfather, uh, Arthur Lowe, and then also her father, Gerard Lambert. Um, it, in a weird kind of way, though, was, was not transferred over to um, us growing up uh, being a big part of her wanting to share that that sort of history in her life. So it wasn't until much later in life when um, I, through friends, the Walshes, was was able to go out to Apple Hill. Um, it was uh, sold uh, to a group called Project Hope, which has owned it up until this past year, since my grandmother sold it back in the, in the 50s. Uh, and uh, you know, she would still return uh, many years after uh, and, and help with the gardens. Uh, it was still very much a place for her and had a place in her heart for many, many years. But for me, it was great to walk through. It was like a museum to me. It had not changed a very simple stone Virginia house with this garden. And I didn't even need to take two seconds to just immediately see the similarities between the design elements that she utilized, but just on a much simpler basis. And to me, that's what made it so fascinating As you could see she had taken these elements to Oak Spring and just magnified them on such a grand scale. But at its heart, it was born at Apple Hill. That must have been an incredibly exciting experience for you all, but you especially, Thomas, going from garden to garden to garden and discovering her anew in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering, what is it for, I suppose, each of you, and I'm going to start with Linda, what is it after this particular project have you come away with as something new that you've learned about Bunny Mellon or her taste or her, um, her, her knowledge or just her, her gardens? I think a lot of people don't want me to come to their houses anymore. Um, <laughs> Because I, you know, I develop, anyone would develop an eye just by spending time, you know, with her. And I walk around, even in my own house, even if, as I'm learning how she did things. But I especially, well, I love history and I love the idea of connection with family. And I, for one, have loved learning about her grandfather, Arthur Lowe, Arthur Houghton Lowe. And he was a magnificent man and have lots of their letters and she's written so much about him and he was a rock for her and also influenced her in her imagination and her ability to think and to dream and have ideas and to believe in herself. And she spent every summer, about six weeks every summer with he and, his, and her grandmother in two places in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. On the weekend, she and her grandfather would go, uh, the, 
he had a, one of those old chauffeur driven cars. So this is in the this is in the 20s when this is happening, and they would drive up to West Ridge, New Hampshire, and he had a farm there. He had actually been born on this farm in the mid 1800s, and then years later bought it back. And part of the reason he bought it back was because the Diamond Match Company had come in and just emaciated all the trees for the matches. And so he took his granddaughter out and had a laborer and they went out on this mountain that had been devastated and they had one guy that they were like a little troop. Uh, one guy dug the hole and then she followed, she would put the seeds in and then her grandfather would come behind her and tamp it down, tamp it down. And they went row by row and every, at the end of every summer, they would etch into a rock there how many trees they planted and where. And so when I was talking recently to the historian up there, I said, I want to know if I can get up there and get onto that farm because the guys and I, we want to come up there. And she said, Linda, it's so thickly planted with trees that I don't think you can get through. And I said, well, that's because of her. <laughs> There's, she planted those trees. Yeah. And so anyway, she learned by his side and also Oak Spring, the way, I don't want to give too much away, but I love, love learning how he, Oak Spring is so much in her heart from her days with her grandfather and what she experienced at his home, the way the gardens were organized, um, even places they visited that she would recreate in fascinating ways. So, and uh, even the whitewashing on the, on the fences. She got that, her father did that at Albemarle. He whitewashed the facade because he wanted to look old and timeless, but not feel, because it was all about how things felt. Right. And influenced the space. And so you see that there. So when she would walk through her garden at Oak Spring, you can imagine she had a very strong connection with her grandfather and her father while she just every day in her garden because right. a lot of it was built upon what she learned from her grandfather. Brian, what did you what did you find surprising um, in this journey? Well, I think for me, it was seeing, going back to Apple Hill and seeing the progression of different houses of hers that I would see, how, as Thomas was talking about, the basic tenant started at an early time in her life. And if she found something that worked or that she liked, she stuck with it, improved upon it, and did it. But everything, and I think to me, when people talk about nothing should be noticed or et cetera with Bunny, the main thing is the restraint. She was able to use a restraint that I think is just amazing for someone that ended up well, grew up and then her means to be able to eschew what you might think of as big formal gardens and do and to have plantings, especially at Oak Spring towards the end that are just free with abandon. You know, the weeds are as loved by her as a prize peony would be loved by someone else. So I just think her kind of stepping off the beaten path throughout her life doing that really stuck with me. Thomas, this is, as you said, uh, creating these books is a chance for you to become 
closer to your grandmother in a posthumous way. What is it in the development of, of, of the books? Have, have you learned about her that surprised you, that gave you more of an insight into her as a person? I think in a, in a large part, it's, it's I, I would like to make sort of the analogy of uh, you, you listen to a song or a poem five times and you hear it a little bit differently each time. I can relate certain pieces or words of wisdom that she gave to me over the years that I didn't really quite take very seriously. But now that I'm beginning to look back and educate myself with all of these, uh, you know, processes and, and, and gardens and, and other projects and the way she affected people's lives, it really rings true and, and resonates in a much deeper way. I will just say the one part that she always said to people and to myself was, you must be able to, at the end of the day, uh, decide for yourself what you want your space to look like. You know, everyone always says to me, you know, you must just copy your grandmother. And, you know, my whole thought, <laughs> whenever I hear that from people is ultimately, if, if my grandmother was there listening to them, she would just say, Certainly, there are things that I'm sure we both appreciate, but I want to know what you like. And I think that she was a mentor to so many people, artists, gardeners. She trained so many people just by allowing them to exercise their own ability and creativity. And she really wanted that from people. So, I mean, I think, you know, whether we relate that to what we're trying to do now at the Institute of Classical Art and Architecture with their new Bunny Mellon curricula, where we're teaching younger architects about how to implement some of these creative um, measures into landscape architecture or just my own stories. I think it's how do you take this creativity and honor this woman who, like Brian said, was able to create a style on of her own just by restraining uh, and, and, and allowing to uh, incorporate other people's passions to build these beautiful places. And she did it. Linda Jane Holden. Thomas Lloyd, Brian Huffman, thank you all very much for coming onto the podcast and talking about Bunny Mellon, her gardens, and the books in which we're going to through which we're going to learn much more about her. Thank you. Thank you, Mitch. It's a privilege. Thank you. Thank you for following the Aesthete since it launched last November. As season three comes to an end, we'll be taking a summer hiatus and look forward to being with you again in the near future. Until then, I hope you'll revisit the dozens of past podcast interviews with everyone from legendary interiors photographer Derry Moore to former Frick Museum associate curator Charlotte Vignon to the dealer and design historian R. Louis Bofferding to AD100 decorators like Thomas Jane, Stephen Gambrell, and Alexa Hampton. I hope you've enjoyed the ADS Theat as much as I've enjoyed hosting it. Have a great summer, and I'll see you soon. The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wartzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.